Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Good morning, Cornerstone Church. How are you? Yeah, good. It's good to see you this morning. So grateful for the chance to share with you. Um, this place, uh, Tulsa, is a really special place for us. I'm born and raised uh, central Wisconsin, like Marshfield area. Do we have any central Wisconsin people? Any Wisconsin people at all in the house this morning? The odds, well, my wife, she doesn't count. The odds were not in our favor on that. But anyway, I moved down here in 1999 to, uh, to go to school at Oral Roberts University. Do we have any Oral Roberts students or alumni in the house here? Just holler at me if you are. That's great. And uh, so I was here from 99 to 03, uh, studied business here at ORU, and then left for a few years, moved up to Chicago, where I got my Master of Divinity. Any Chicago friends in the house? Not too many. Okay, very interesting. That's a big zero, actually. And then moved back here in 2006, and we helped pastor. I was an associate pastor at Sanctuary Church just across town for a few years from 06 to 09 before moving to Colorado and doing some stuff there. I say all that just to say this city is like a second home for us in a lot of ways. Um, uh, just walking the grounds of ORU, I was remembering some of the most significant moments of my life have happened in this city, and we love this place. We love this place dearly. And uh, we have watched the church over the years in Tulsa ebb and flow. In some ways, there has been a great rising and a great falling of many ministries and churches. And... Um, what this city needs more than anything else is just that church, churches that are committed to the long game, staying committed to Jesus Christ, staying committed to the love of God and the love of neighbor, staying committed to the historical patterns of the church as they've been given to us more or less unchanged over the last 2,000 years. And so to see what's happening here in this church, it's like a dream come true for us from afar. And just know that you have friends from around the world, around the country that are cheering you on. And they're so grateful for what God is doing here and for what you guys are doing in this city. Um, so you can pat yourselves on the back for that and give thanks to God for that. Also, I just wanted to say to you, um, you have a really good pastor on your hands. Can you give it up for Pastor John Odom and his wife, Emily? Eugene Peterson had this great phrase that he coined a book by the name, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And we need pastors that are oriented that way, just committed to Jesus, committed to the fundamentals of our faith, committed to living quiet lives and all godliness and holiness and leading God's people well. And you have a really good leader on your hands. So pray for him and love him and help him and support him and bless him. And I'm telling you, you guys have a long and bright future together. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, uh, so I am in the book of Galatians this morning. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. We just read from the scripture a moment ago. I'm going to pray here in a second, and then I want to read the scripture one more time just to draw your attention to a few things, and, uh, and then we'll get started. So Lord, here we are in your presence. The psalmist said that your love is better than life itself, and therefore my lips will glorify you. And we don't have to go anywhere to find your love. For the psalmist said elsewhere that the unfailing love of Yahweh, it's filling the earth. It's our atmosphere. It's our breath. We're surrounded by the love that will not let us go. We're surrounded by a love that's not just sympathetic to our plight. But the psalmist says one thing 
God has spoken two things have I heard. You, O God, are strong and you're loving. And so that means that whatever it is you desire to do for us that is good and you only desire good for us, you're also more than able to accomplish it for us. That's what surrounds us on every side. I'm praying this morning that you would teach us to trust that again. I know that there are a lot of us in here that we kind of have our guard up and we have clenched fists and we sort of live that way. We live looking over our shoulder. We live with a bit of a flinch. Would you help us lay that down this morning? Would you help us relax into the presence? Would you help us drink deeply of the well of your spirit? And would you renew us by that same spirit for the mission that you've called us to in the world? We're so grateful for you. Come, we pray. We ask that as we open the scriptures together, that the Spirit would search our hearts, that the rabbi himself, the resurrected one, Jesus the Lord, that you'd be present among us, teaching us and helping us. We pray that we would hear what we need to hear and we would forget everything else. Grant that, we pray. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said... Galatians chapter 5, one more time, John, I did very much appreciate your interpretation of 519 there. That was as good a Freudian slip as happens in church. Paul says the acts of the flesh are obvious. We know them, we can see them, they're everywhere. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like, I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's primarily because those who live like that are living against the kingdom of God. That's not what God's kingdom is about. God's kingdom restores human life and makes it whole. And so when we make concentrated decisions to live against that, God in the end gives us what we want. Like, you never really wanted my kingdom. So here, you have what it is you want. And as it turns out, that leads to the diminishment of human life. But then Paul shifts here. And he says, but let's talk about what happens in the kingdom of God. Let's talk about what happens when the Spirit of God invades a person's life. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, is love and it's joy and it's peace and it's forbearance or patience, as I learned it. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then finally, say it real loud, self-control. And against these things, he says, there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let's just keep in step by the Spirit. Or another way to translate that would be, since we have been made alive by the Spirit, let's order our lives to whatever it is the Spirit is doing in us. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Uh, Brothers and sisters, once again, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, So here is Paul, like, outlining what we see in the world all around us, right? Hatred, jealousy, anger, discord, sexual immorality, witchcraft, drunkenness. I mean, it's the whole debauched condition of the human experience. And we don't have to search very far to find it. It's all around us. We're kind of baked into it from the start. We are devouring one another and devouring ourselves, and it's leading to the diminishment of human life in every conceivable way. And yet, Paul says, in the middle of all of that, there is like this bastion of sanity that's taking place. The spirit of the living God, the spirit who brought us into being out of the very dust of the earth, breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and we became living beings. That spirit right now is moving into the human life, wherever human lives have been, corru- lives have been corrupted by sin. The spirit is coming and creating this kind of newness. Well, Paul says it elsewhere, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says that if anybody is in Christ, that person is a, you might know it, 
a new creation. That's right. That's what the Spirit does. When the Spirit moves in, all of a sudden there is this renewal that takes place. And so Paul looks at what's going on in the Galatian church. He looks at the evidence of the Spirit. And he says right in the middle of all of that craziness, there is this bastion of sanity that the Spirit is creating. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like it's the fruits of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the marks of what happens when the Spirit gets a hold of people's lives. By the way, when you come into this space on a Sunday morning, that's part of what you're experiencing. That's what draws you here. That it's not just the worship is great and the preaching is great, but you're looking around and there are signs of the Spirit. The fruit is to feed us. And so we feed off of these things when the Spirit produces it in one another's lives. But what I find fascinating about the list is where Paul starts and where Paul ends. So he starts with love. That The first thing that the Spirit produces in us is love. All of a sudden we're not living in hatred and antagonism for other people, but we're living in holy desire and godly affection for other people. And then he outlines all of these other fruits of the Spirit, and he capstones it with self-control, which I think is really telling. And I want to talk about that for just a second. So here's the first claim that I want to make, a little theological claim just to put in front of you. And that is this, that to be human, put the next slide up on the screen, to be human is to be impelled by powerful desires. To be human is to be impelled by powerful desires. So it's helpful, I think, to just Think about what we think about when we think about what it means to be a human being. Uh, you know, the old term for a human being, homo sapien, right? And so that's a way of talking about like sapienta, right? Is that what primarily defines the human being is that we're thinking, cogitating beings. And for a long time in the Western world, that is really how we've thought about what it means to be human. What is it that separates us primarily from the animals? You know, well, we can think rational thoughts and we can weigh thoughts against one another and make decisions. And I 100% agree with that. But I think to think about what it means to be a human being just in terms of what happens in our minds is to fail to see the whole picture of what it means to be a human being. And some philosophers in recent years have said that one of the ways that we ought to talk about human beings is that human beings are homo adorans, like adoring things. That what actually constitutes our lived existence is what we love. That what we're defined by is what we desire and how we've given flesh to those desires. So think about your own life now for a moment. So I think about my own life. I'm 41 years old. I've been married to my wife for 22 years. We just celebrated 22 years of marriage this past, uh, earlier this month. And when I think about like what my life is, my life basically is the product of the powerful desires that I have had in my life. You know, I felt from a very early age um, I remember identifying, like I'd watch my pastor preach when I was a kid, and I think that's what I want to do. I want, right? I desire that. Something in me resonated with that. And so what do you do then? You spend a lifetime curating experiences that allow your life to take the shape of your desire, right? I remember Mandy and I, Mandy and I were in high school together, and I remember the first time that I laid eyes on her. Something in me said, I want that. <laughs> and here we are. My life is the product of that desire. We got married and we started comparing what was going on in our hearts, and we said, we want kids. And now we have kids, four beautiful kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. And there was a long time there where, you know, I'm born and raised in Wisconsin, and then I spent some time here in Oklahoma, graduate school in Chicago. And there are many wonderful things about the Midwest. And there are some horrible things, too. In Wisconsin, soul-crushing winters. In Chicago, the suffocating traffic. And 
Tulsa, you got a lot of beautiful things about you, but that heat out there, that is rough. It just pushes you down. And so there was a desire to live somewhere else. And so now we live in Colorado, which is like everything that you love about living in the Midwest minus everything that you hate about it. And it's so right. So that's my life. My life is the product and your life too. Think about the things that you love. And it's more even than that. It's also your passions, your pleasures, your hobbies, the things that make you tick, right? Your your homo adorans. Your life is the product of the things that you love. But the problem is we don't always love the right things or desire the right things, right? The problem is mixed in with our godly desires and our God-given desires, there are a whole bunch of desires that are skewed because of sin. And so we start desiring the wrong things or we we desire the right things in the wrong way or at the wrong time. And now we're just kind of a confused mess inside story from the Arndt family that has become kind of legendary over the years. I was a little guy. I didn't have siblings until I was like five, six years old maybe. So that meant that I was doing everything with my mom all the time. And one of the things that I hated doing when I was very little was going grocery shopping. I just could not stand it. Grocery shopping was drudgery of the first order. And my mom a very meticulous grocery shopper. Like my mom would never just like run into the grocery store, you know, like I have to get some meat. My mom would have a list of 50 items and she had all the coupons and everything. And so a trip to the grocery store like two hours long and that meant that I was missing at least four sequences of cartoons, bad. And so I go with my mom, you know, and I remember going on this one particular day and we're walking up and down the aisle and I'm trying to find a consolation prize for myself, you know? And so we're walking up and down the aisle and I just got these desires. And so I remember pointing at something and I was like, well, mom, can I have that thing? And she goes, no, you can't have it. So a little piece of me died inside. So we go on to the next aisle, you know, and I go, Mom, what about that thing? Can I have that thing? She goes, no, you can't have that again. Oh, another piece of me dies. We do this for the better part of an hour. Mom, can I have that? No. Mom, can I have that? No. Mom, what about that thing? No. Mom, can I have that? No. Very disorienting, you know. We get finally to the checkout aisle, and I'm like just about out of gas at this point. Like my wanter is just about dead, but, you know, I'm trying to like rehabilitate it here. And so we're in the checkout aisle, and I see a candy bar or something, and I go, Mom, can I have that? You know what she said? No. (laughs) And in exasperation, little Andrew said, everything I see, I want. (laughs) That is the human condition, isn't it? It's like we want to love God, but we also want sex and money and power, right? We want to love our neighbors, but we also would really like to see vengeance visited upon them. We would like to have our country be a happy place where everybody gets along, but we would love to see the rival political party annihilated and wiped off the face of the earth. So we can't decide what's going on. This is the reason that our lives are such a disastrous bit of disorder, is that we have godly desires and we have these other desires raging in us at the same time. So Paul puts it like this, Titus 3 and verse 3, Paul says that at one time, he's talking about our pre-sort of redeemed state, he says, unsanctified. At one time, he says, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of, what does the text say there? Passions and pleasures. That our life was held captive by passions and pleasures, by desires that had run amok. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. We were not designed to live that way. We weren't designed to live with desires crashing into one another and making a mess of our lives. We were designed to have rulership over our desires, 
rulership over our will, rulership over all of our passions and pleasures so that we could guide them in the right way. Think about what the writer of Genesis says when he talks about what it means to be made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may... What does the text say there? So that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the, the livestock, and all the creeping things that move along the ground. Human beings were designed to rule. We weren't designed to be enslaved. We weren't designed to be led about by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were designed to be free, to have mastery over ourselves. And so the great church father, Basil of Caesarea, said this in the fourth century. He said that as soon as you are made as a human being, you are also made a ruler, ruler of the passion, ruler of the beasts. And here's his interpretation of the wild beasts and the creeping things that move along the ground. He says that if you rule the thoughts in yourself, he says, then you'll become the ruler of all things. That the primary thing that must be tamed in us is all of the desires that are competing inside of us. And the claim that Paul makes here in Galatians is that as the advent of the Spirit comes into our lives, what happens is that we start gaining back mastery of ourselves. We not only love the right things, but we love the right things in the right way. And we stop loving the wrong things. We channel the desire for the wrong things into the desire for the right things. And so what happens in us is we become people characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We relearn again what it means to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the work of the Spirit. So I'd say it this way, that the work of the Spirit in our lives restores us to the rightful rule of our thoughts, passions, and desires, which means that we are in the driver's seat of our actions again. We're no longer just kind of popping off and doing this and doing that, undertaking things that we go, I don't know what came over me, right? That's not the evidence of the Spirit. The evidence of the Spirit is that we are in control of who we are. Now, just to illustrate this further and to kind of drive the point home, what I'm talking about, what I think Paul is getting at here. So we've got, I told you, we've got four kids, Ethan, Gabe, uh, Bella, and Liam. And uh, all of our kids uh, have done hilarious and amazing things. But we tell a lot of Gabe stories because Gabe had this way of just saying the most profound stuff. And so Gabe, he's just a little guy, five, six, seven years old maybe. And I'm tucking Gabe in for the night you know, and talking to him and praying over him and stuff. And I can tell Gabe's got, like, I just see it in his eyes, you know, that he got something on his mind. And so I said, I said, Gabe, like, is there something that you need to say to dad? And he kind of huffs. He goes, dad, I can't wait to be a grown-up. And I just knew something great was coming. And I said, why, Gabe? Why can't you wait to be a grown-up? And he said this. He said, because when I'm grown-up, I'll be able to do whatever I want to do. (laughs) I laughed. Is that what you think this is? (laughs) Man, I got some bad news for you, kid. So he's wrong, isn't he? Growing up, becoming an adult, becoming mature, 
is not just doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. However, there is a sense in which he was profoundly right that as we mature, as we grow, as the Spirit helps us take mastery over who we are, we actually can be trusted to do the things that we want because we only want to do the right things. And so on one level, adulthood is not just doing whatever you want. On another level, it profoundly is being able to do whatever you want. The great Dallas Willard said it this way. He said that it is God's intention that we should become the kind of person that God could empower to do whatever it is we want to do. Because our will has become aligned with the will of God. Some of you may have read during your English lit classes when you were a kid or in high school or whatever, uh, The Divine Com Comedy by Dante. It's the story of really the journey of a soul through hell and purgatory into paradise. And it's about the transformation that takes place as we come into encounter with God. And Dante has this tour guide, the great Greek poet Virgil. And Virgil has guided him through purgatory. He comes through this cleansing of his soul. And Virgil's remaining words to Dante before he begins to ascend into paradise are this. And I think these are incredible words. Watch this. My son, he says, you've seen the temporary fire and the eternal fire, and you've reached the place past which my powers cannot see. And I've brought you through intellect and art, but from now on, oh, I love this. From now on, let your pleasure be your guide. You're past the steep and the narrow paths. Look at the sun that shines upon your brow. Look at the grasses, the flowers, and the shrubs born here spontaneously of the earth. Among them you can rest or walk until the coming of the glad and lovely eyes, those eyes that weeping sent me to your side. Await no further word or sign from me. Your will is free, erect, and whole, and to act against that will would be to err. Therefore, I crown and mitre you over yourself. That's the culmination of the spiritual journey that the Spirit actually gives us back ourselves so that we can use those selves in the service of the love of God and the love of other people. Are you tracking with me this morning, Cornerstone Church? Give me, I'll give you a story here to illustrate this, just to let you know what I'm thinking about here. I uh, had a friend for many years who worked at a large Episcopal church in Denver. Uh, big church, big staff, lots of people, many layers of leadership and accountability and structure and committees and all of that stuff. And so uh, conversations on the staff about things that mattered could get really contentious. And so they were in a staff meeting, committee meeting, vestry meeting, some kind of meeting one day. And there were lots of people there and everybody, they were debating some contentious issue in the church, you know. And so one person speaks up and says what they think about the thing. And somebody else across the room goes, well, I vehemently disagree with you, you know. And so now they're kind of at each other. And then a third party jumps in and a fourth party jumps in. And lines are being drawn in the sand. And the whole thing is kind of starting to break apart. And part of the party that day, somebody sitting at the table was a guy by the name of Father Art, an old Episcopal priest. And Art was in his latter years. He'd seen everything in church world. He'd seen disputes like this and debates like this. And Art had walked with Jesus for a lot of years been formed by the Spirit, had mastery over himself. And Art is sitting over there. He's at the table, but he's kind of leaned back away from the table. Everybody pretty cantankerous and disputing with one another. And Art is really not saying anything. And so the conversation just rages for a while. And finally, they turn over to Father Art and they say, Art, you haven't said anything in this entire meeting. You're like the preeminent guy at the table here, you know, the spiritual guru who's wisdom we're looking for. Art, would you please tell us what do you think about this matter? 
And Art thought about it for a second. And then he leaned in and he said, I'll tell you what I think. I think that the Holy Spirit is always leading us to friendship. Like, I know this thing is like really contentious. You know, how much money we're going to spend on paint for the building or something like that. I know, I know. It's really, really important. That we, but I want you also to remember that the Holy Spirit is always leading us to friendship. Like our relationships with one another are more important than any big dispute or any big debate that we could have in this church. And somehow, my friend said to me, somehow Art, having mastery over himself, not caught up in the anger, not caught up in the rage, not caught up in the debate. Art has mastery over himself, and so he can speak the word that needs to be spoken, that diffuses all of the tension in the room, and leads everybody back to each other. Friends, we need more human beings like this on planet Earth. We're living in a time where we're biting and devouring one another, competing desires are tearing our communities apart, our families apart, tearing our nation apart. So what we need more than ever, we need people who are they're in control of themselves. They have a sense of self-mastery, submitted to God, submitted to the Spirit. They're able to be in charge of themselves, which means that they can step into any situation and they can be healers, which is why Paul sets up the fruits of the Spirit by the way, the way that he does. That if love is the cornerstone, self-control is the capstone. And as we have mastery over ourselves, we're able to love in very unique and specific ways that liberate and bless and heal the world. This is what Paul says at the beginning of Galatians chapter 5, or in the middle of Galatians 5 rather. He says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but rather, you know what you're going to do? Serve one another in love. And in that way, the new creation comes spilling into our lives. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? You tracking with me? Yeah? Okay. A little murmur? All right. Let me give you three things in conclusion here. How do we grow in our command of ourselves? What does it look like for us to regain mastery over ourselves? I'm going to give you three things that may be surprising to you, but you know these things already. So this is me just reiterating what you already know. Number one, I'll just say this. Actually, I'm going to work in reverse order here. So we're going to start with number three. How do we grow in command of ourselves? I think that one of the first ways that we do this, friends, is we reclaim sacred rhythm in our lives. I think we're living in a time that has so disoriented our sense of how to live a human life that most of us are kind of at a loss for how to organize our time, organize our life, organize our schedules. And remember the first commands that are given to the people of God in the Ten Commandments. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? No other gods before you. And you don't make a graven image, right? That's number two. And number three, you don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And then do you remember what the fourth commandment is? Here we have these commands that are all about our relationship with God and keeping that clean. But now we start moving into like our actual space. Do you remember what the fourth commandment is? Ha <laughs> ha, yes. Remember the Sabbath day, the day of worship, by keeping it holy. You don't make it holy. You keep it holy. You acknowledge the holiness of it. Like, what does the love of God look like when it begins to work its way into our schedules? It looks like we prioritize worship. And I'm telling you, something about prioritizing worship has this way of pulling the rest of our lives into shape. Many of us were living in a time when the average church attendance, like the most attendance churchgoers, are like 1.5 times a month or something like that. 
But the first obligation of the people of God is that they gather together to worship their God. And there's something about that, I suggest, that begins to reorient your time, you know. You go, well, I, you know, it's hard to show up every Sunday for worship because my kids are so tired and we're all kind of stressed out. And, you know, it's been a really busy weekend. Well, yeah, I know, like, that's the point. So maybe if you prioritize that thing, what that does is that it works retroactively into your schedule. And you start thinking, wait, what are the decisions that I need to make during the week that get us in a place where we can show up for Sunday, we can show up for worship on Sunday? And we're clear-minded and clear-hearted and we're ready to go for it. There's something about that that changes things. I think about, just as an illustration real quick here, I think about five years or so ago, we had been through a really stressful season and my sleep was just completely out of whack, you know. And I went through this long stretch, like six months probably, of trying to reclaim my sleep. And I began to say to myself, all decisions that I make that are good for my sleeping at night are also good decisions for me to make in my life in general. You know what I mean? Like, not too much caffeine, not too much alcohol, not too much junk food, making sure that I'm limiting my screen time, praying for forgiveness before I go to bed, and releasing hurts that have accrued to me during the day. All of the, it's like because I wanted to sleep so bad, (laughs) it pulled all of these other things into proportion. I think that worship does that. I think it pulls the other pieces of our lives into proportion and we start regaining a sense of sacred rhythm. That's number three. Number two, I'd say that what we do is we bathe our minds in Scripture. That as we, this is what Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. This is Romans 12, but you know this verse. He says, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. That somehow when we let the Scripture into our minds and into our hearts, What it does is it gives us a fresh imagination for what is right and good and strength comes into us for living the right way, becoming masters of our thoughts and our desires. A moment that happened with Mandy and I when we were college students here living at uh, Pheasant Run Apartments, 73rd and Lewis. And we had such a great uh, like setup for us. So we were on the second floor of the apartments. Right next to us on one side was some of our dear friends, this married couple. And on the other side was this ORU couple, and both of them were like accounting students or something like that. So they're real quiet, really nice. (laughs) And you know who lived below us? Absolutely no one. It's a model apartment that they showed to people who wanted to like live there. It's like this ideal situation, you know. And one day, this is like one semester, we saw a moving truck pull up in front of the apartment, and all of a sudden all of this furniture is getting carted in, you know, we're like, oh my gosh, our wonderful situation is about to be disturbed here, you know, and uh, so somebody's moving in there, and we saw there's like this old lady moves in underneath us, okay, that's fine, she's going to be quiet, and our, you know, situation shouldn't be disturbed like that much, and then all of a sudden, like, we started, like, waking up to, like, massive amounts of cigarette smoke, yeah, everybody groans, Massive amounts of cigarette smoke, and oh my gosh, okay, well, you know, maybe it's just like a little habit, and so, but surely a person can't smoke all day. No, they can. And she did smoke all day, and then she smoked like deep into the night, like two in the morning, like three in the morning, you know, and you're laying there trying to sleep in the smoke, like you watching blue clouds, the smoke, like waft up into the apartment. And I remember, right, the desires waking up in us, oh, we gotta like do something. Surely this is a violation in some way and we get this woman kicked out of the apartment, you know, ungodly desires in us. And Mandy and I had this habit at the time of like before we went off to school or work or whatever, we'd sit down and we'd read the proverb of the day, proverb that corresponds to the day in the calendar. And the proverb of the day that morning was this, he who despises his neighbor sins, 
but blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. And so we baked a plate of cookies and we went downstairs and we knocked on the door and she answered the door, Linda. And we asked her about herself and she told us her story about how she'd been recently widowed and their financial situation was such a disaster that her life had been reduced and so she had to live in this apartment. And so her once sprawling, beautiful, robust life had gotten very small and she was just so sad about it. And we thought about her sitting awake at night What is she doing? She's just consoling herself. And our hearts broke for her. How did that happen? We were arrested by the scripture. And it put us back in the love of God and the love of our neighbor. Find space to encounter the scripture. And then the last thing with this we'll set up for communion. Number one, make prayer your delight. One of the desert fathers, Abba Nilus, said that prayer is the seed of gentleness and the absence of anger. And you know this because you've been in the presence of God before. You come in with your fists clenched, you come in with desires raging, and you in something about being in the presence of God, it gentles you and it settles you and it puts you back in your right mind. To prioritize a life of prayer is to become the kinds of people that have mastery over themselves so that they can love God and love the world around them in the right way. Can I pray for you? Jesus, help us. Spirit, we thank you for the gentle invasion of the kingdom of God that you bring to us. And so just as we prayed at the beginning of this service, we pray that the desires that are put in us by sin would die in us. That you'd help us love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you'd help us love the world around us better than we love ourselves, actually help us love it as you have loved us. Put your heart in us. Give us back ourselves so that we can give ourselves away to you and to the world around us. Grant and we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.